from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the live stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the Frankston serial killer, Paul Denyer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So Paul Charles Denyer was born on April 14, 1972 in Campbelltown, which is a suburb of Sydney, Australia. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. Now, one of the bigger news stories was the Watergate scandal. The then-President Richard Nixon's administration devised a plan to burglarize the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. to, you know, photograph campaign documents and install listening devices and telephones. While successful with installing the listening devices, the committee agents soon determined that they needed repairs. They plotted a second, quote, burglary in order to take care of the situation, but were discovered. And Nixon said at a news conference, quote, I can say categorically that no one in the White House staff, no one in this administration, presently employed, was involved in this very bizarre incident, end quote. He was, of course, lying and resigned as the President of the United States. NASA's Space Shuttle Program was also launched during this year. President Nixon approved the program and announced it to the American public. The purpose of the program was to create a reusable spacecraft with the goal of reducing the cost of space exploration and making it more commonplace. The Winter Olympics were held in Japan in 1972, and a total of 1,006 athletes from 35 different countries participated in 35 events. The Japanese government spent a lot of money to upgrade the city's transportation in preparation for the Games. 
the British government declared a state of emergency over a 47-day miners' strike due to the National Executive Committee of the NUM rejecting a pay raise offer from the National Coal Board. Miners began picketing coal power stations and then escalated to all power stations, steelworks, ports, coal depots, and other major coal users. They eventually reached an agreement after the government had to instate a three-day work week to conserve energy. An earthquake in Turkey killed more than 1,000 people and left well over 10,000 homeless. An earthquake in Nicaragua killed nearly 10,000 people, and yet another earthquake in Iraq killed over 5,000. And Hurricane Agnes struck the East Coast, hitting Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland, and Virginia, killing well over 100 people. The last major epidemic of smallpox in Europe breaks out in Yugoslavia, in Northern Ireland, on what is called Bloody Friday. Twenty-two bombs explode in Belfast, Ireland, and nine people are killed, with a further one hundred and thirty seriously injured. On Bloody Sunday, like the U2 song, fourteen unarmed Catholic protesters were gunned down by the British Army. Also this year, the world's leaders agree to banning biological warfare, though. Personally, I don't believe that agreement has been followed on any level, but. I digress. The Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 was the chartered flight from Montevideo, Uruguay, to Santiago, Chile, and crashed in the Andes in 1972. The flight was carrying 45 passengers and crew, including 19 members of the Old Christians Club Rugby Union team, along with their families, supporters, and friends. Three crew members and nine passengers died immediately. Several more died soon after due to the frigid temperatures and the severity of their injuries. For the next 72 days, the survivors suffered extreme hardships, including exposure, starvation, and an avalanche, which led to the deaths of 13 more passengers. The remaining passengers resorted to cannibalism to survive, but survive they did. So this was the atmosphere that Paul was born into. Now Paul's parents, Anthony and Maureen Denyer, were working-class immigrants from England. The couple had met in London, married in the very early 1960s, and brought their first child, a son who was a toddler, with them to Australia. Once they landed and got settled, it was said that Anthony worked as a bus driver or a conductor, and Maureen worked as an office clerk or a secretary. Pretty quickly, Anthony started working in fast food and went on to work for McDonald's, the burger chain. The next son was born in 1971, and 13 months later, Paul was born. Two years after, another son, and then after that, twins—a boy and a girl. In 1976, now Maureen would later say that there wasn't anything really remarkable about Paul's infancy. The only thing she could recall as to any negative experience was that she had placed him on a table and he rolled off, hitting his head. But it didn't appear to be anything serious. No real head trauma was reported. 
but sources said that the family did innocently tease him about hitting his head as a baby if he did silly childhood things. But really, all families do that, in my experience. His toddlerhood must have been unremarkable because there wasn't really any information. But when he started kindergarten, his teacher noted that he wasn't really able to successfully mingle with his classmates and play with them. But it didn't take long for him to acclimate, and he caught up for the most part and was playing with his classmates normally by the time he was in early elementary school. And yet it was said that he also was hard to get motivated and could be uncooperative at times. He joined the Cubs, which is like the Boy Scouts, but was eventually told he wasn't allowed to attend for being disruptive. His teachers noted that he was an average student, some good grades, some not so good grades, and the most common description of him was that he was reserved. Then in 1981, when Paul was around nine years old, Anthony got a job at a place called The Steak Place as a manager, and the family had to move to Mulgrave, Victoria. None of the children were very happy about the move, but it hit Paul the hardest, so the sources said. He seemed to have a very difficult time fitting in with the other kids, and apparently he began gaining weight at this time. He seemed to not be able to make friends, and he became pretty withdrawn, kept to himself, lost motivation, and didn't seem to have any self-confidence. Things with him and his brothers with the neighborhood children didn't seem a lot better. According to author Ian Monroe, a former neighbor later said, quote, They seemed so wild. They used to run across the roof of the house. The boys were out of control. They were uncontrollable kids. We did not want our kids mixing with them. End quote. Another former neighbor stated, quote, I did not like the family at all. If we got home late at night and it was dark, the kids were always out on the street playing. When they first moved in, the husband seemed to be away a lot. My husband was working from home for some of that time, and Mrs. Denyer said to him she was having problems controlling the children. It was like the kids ran that place. They did what they wanted. They took off when they wanted. Yeah, they used to play around on the roof. The Deniers were people we wanted to keep away from. End quote. And as Paul grew, he became noticeably taller than the other kids and still quite a lot heavier. And for all of his lack of want to pay attention in class, it seemed to be the opposite when he was at home. As he neared his teens, he seemed to become all-consumed with collecting and making weapons, things like knives, slingshots, spears, ninja stars, and clubs. When he was 11 years old, sources said that he grabbed one of his sister's teddy bears and cut the throat of it. He also apparently slit the family cat's throat and then hung its remains from a tree. Just before he turned 13, Paul was caught and charged with stealing a car, though they released him with just a warning. Then, only two months later, he was in trouble yet again and charged with making a false report to the fire department, theft, and willful damage. But this was the behavior of a boy who didn't really seem to have any friends and who spent his small amount of time socializing with his brothers. 
The eldest brother said that Paul was a bit of a tag-along, and when he wasn't, he was wholly preoccupied with making weapons. Now, when he was 15 years old, Paul allegedly forced another boy to masturbate in front of some children and was charged with assault, and he dropped out of high school at 15. And so that's about all we have for his childhood. But, you know, it's a fair amount. I think it's, it gives us a pretty good picture. So let's dive right in. I wasn't able to find much of any background on Paul's parents. There were some hints that, you know, perhaps his father wasn't terribly involved with the children and that his mother seemed to be quite overwhelmed with all of them. I mean, I certainly would be trying to wrangle five boys and their one girl while she also tried to work and help keep a roof over their head. Just speculation, of course, but that's sort of the impression that I got. And while it didn't seem to cause any lasting effects, he did suffer a fall in his infancy and hit his head. According to an article written for the University of Oxford, quote, Childhood brain injuries, including concussions, are associated with an increased risk of subsequent mental illness, poor school attainment, and premature death, according to a study published today in PLOS Medicine, end quote. An Oxford University-led research team in the UK, the US, and Sweden, funded by Wellcome, analyzed data from more than a million Swedish persons born between 1973 and 1985 to examine the long-term impact of having a traumatic brain injury before the age of 25. Professor Sina Fazel from Oxford University, lead author of the study, explained, quote, we found that a childhood brain injury increased the chances of all these things. More serious brain injuries and repeated brain injuries made them even more likely. End quote. So people who had experienced a single mild, moderate, or severe brain injury during childhood were at twice the risk of being admitted to hospital as a mental health inpatient, an increase in absolute risk from 5 to 10 percent, and were 50 percent more likely to use a mental health service, that's an increase from 14 to 20 percent, than unaffected people in the same age group. They were 80 percent more likely to receive disability benefits, increased from 4 to 6 percent, and 70 percent more likely to die before the age of 41. There were also 60 percent more likely to have done poorly at school or be in receipt of welfare benefits. So this makes it at least plausible that he did suffer some ill effects of this accidental falling when Paul was an infant. Without knowing how his siblings did in school and what their personalities and behavior were in comparison to Paul's, well, we just don't know. But there could potentially be something there, that's what I'm saying. And then, prior to Anthony, Paul's father, forcing the family to move to Victoria, you know, he seemed to be pretty average. His teachers in elementary school all seemed to report that it took him a bit to open up and interact with his peers, but he did eventually do that. And we could rationalize that he was the middle child and quite comfortable playing with his own siblings. So he could have been a bit slower to, you know, warm to the other kids at school. But again, that is just speculation. There's just nothing new about children being shy, really. 
But it was after the move that things seemed to take a very bad turn. It was said that he became withdrawn, kept to himself, lost motivation, and didn't seem to have any self-confidence. None of the Denyer kids were happy about the move, of course, but it was said that it hit Paul the hardest. One of the more common things said about this time was also that he began gaining weight pretty quickly. According to the MacArthur Foundation, quote, Moving to a new home in childhood can impede school performance, social skills and behavior, and the negative effects accumulate. The timing of the move in childhood has different effects. Residential moves between birth and kindergarten impeded social-emotional but not cognitive functioning in kindergarten. Moves in elementary school affected both cognitive and social-emotional functioning in fifth grade. So if we remember, Paul was nine years old, which would have put him in about fourth grade or so. So there could be something to that as well. And so Paul turned his attentions to weapons, and it appeared that he was pretty consumed with this activity, enough so that one of his brothers thought his interest in weapons was a bit, well, odd. And then when he was 11 years old, we see him starting to display some extremely troubling behaviors. He grabbed his young sister's teddy bear and slit its throat, and then he went from that immediately to doing the same to the family's young cat, murdering this cat and then displaying its remains on a tree or hanging them from a tree. And, you know, really, we've talked about this quite a bit, but according to an article written for the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, quote, Animal abuse by children is common, with 3 to 44 percent of children being reported to abuse animals at some point during their childhood. Much of this behavior may be regarded as an extension of exploratory behavior in a younger child. However, the apparent link between child and animal abuse is an area of increasing interest, with children who abuse animals being two to three times more likely to be directly abused themselves. Review of the literature on the subject finds that abuse to an animal that is perpetrated by an older child, meaning 10 years or older, is more likely to be associated with child abuse. Animal abuse is less common in girls compared with boys, and there is some suggestion that child abuse may be likely in these cases. Some papers have reported a higher prevalence of animal abuse in children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, developmental delay, and conduct disorder, but the relationship with child abuse in these cases is unknown. End quote. So, Let's explore conduct disorder, which refers to a group of behavioral and emotional problems characterized by a disregard for others. Children with conduct disorder have a difficult time following rules and behaving in a socially acceptable way. Their behavior can be hostile and sometimes physically violent. In their earlier years, they may show early signs of aggression, including pushing, hitting, and biting others. We didn't really have any information about Paul behaving this way in his early years, though. Adolescents and teens with conduct disorder may move into more serious behaviors, including bullying, hurting animals, picking fights, theft, vandalism, and arson. 
They often have other mental health issues as well that they may contribute to the development of the conduct disorder. The disorder is more prevalent in boys than girls, as I said. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, you know, this could be what was going on with Paul. He killed an animal. He displayed the remains in a tree. Even though it was just a teddy bear, he still slit the throat of a beloved toy of his little sister. In his mid-teens, he was caught and charged with stealing a car. Two months later, he was charged with making a false report to the fire department. Huh? Fire? And theft and then willful damage. When he was 15 years old, Paul allegedly forced another boy to masturbate in front of some other children and was charged with assault. So we see, you know, a pretty severe decline in his behavior rather quickly. Some signs of conduct disorder include physical aggression, violating the rights of others, lying or manipulation, delinquent behaviors, fire setting, fire, trespassing, cheating, and so on. And it seems to fit when it comes to Paul. And in the same breath, there was no child abuse reported that I found. If he were abused by either of his parents or anyone around him, it wasn't reported. And it certainly doesn't sound like he was neglected in any meaningful way either. The move to a new area, a new school, and new peers certainly sounds like it had a negative impact on him. But was that enough for him to go on to become a murderer? I don't really think that totally explains it, but we'll see. So let's get back into the story. Now, Paul went on to attend a small technical college, albeit shortly, and he was observed spending time in the library where everyone who noticed him said he was quite obviously a loner. It was said that he was quiet, withdrawn, but seemed to be comfortable within himself. But he was observed taking long walks by himself late at night. Maureen, his mother, was startled at discovering Paul standing and staring at her silently while she was changing her clothes. One of his siblings remembered a time where his mother asked him to get a job since she and Anthony did eventually separate, and Paul picked up a glass mug, laughed at her, and then chucked the glass right at her. And, you know, Paul did hold various odd jobs, but never for very long, just sort of drifting around stagnant in his young adult life. He was usually fired for not having much of a work ethic. He once worked in a grocery store, but was fired because they caught him stealing from the store. Paul also knocked a woman and her child to the ground with like this long connected line of shopping carts, and he made no effort to avoid the collision, according to the store manager. But it was while working at this job that he met and began dating a young woman whose name I'll leave out just to be nice to her. I was not able to verify how long this relationship lasted, but they did move in together. She, of course, had to work 
two jobs to make ends meet because Paul couldn't keep a job for any substantial length of time. Now, Paul decided he wanted to join the Victoria Police Force, but they told him he wouldn't be able to join because of his physical health and the fact that he was quite overweight. Side note, this kind of reminds me of Edmund Kemper in that he applied to join the police force, but they told him he was entirely too tall. But in early 1993, the now 21-year-old Paul got a job at a boat building shop, except after a short time when he began to work there. Co-workers saw him making knives and various little weapons instead of actually doing his work. He was fired after several months due to his failure to complete his assigned tasks. So Paul was labeled as a social outcast, unable to keep a job through a mixture of laziness and incompetence. His nickname was John Candy, after the heavy actor because of his physical appearance. He had always enjoyed scary movies, but he developed a fixation for macabre and horrific murder movies, which he watched on repeat. Hello, Dahmer. But with the ample free time Paul had, some strange things began to occur around the apartment complex that he lived in. One tenant arrived home to find that her apartment had been broken into. Her clothes and engagement pictures had been slashed. Another female tenant caught the glimpse of a man peeping at her through a window. One female tenant and neighbor named Trish had a sister who was a single mother and sometimes stayed with Trish named Donna. Donna had her own place and it was said that she came home once to find her place had been broken into and her cats or her cat and her kittens had been killed viciously, disemboweled and slashed to death, their remains littered around the house. The perpetrator later to be identified as Paul, had written in the cat's blood, quote, Donna, you're dead, end quote. Donna was obviously terrified and started taking her infant and riding around with her boyfriend while he worked as a pizza delivery guy. After this is when she began staying with her sister Trish with Paul's neighborly reassurance that, you know, if the perp was ever identified, he would personally take care of him. 18-year-old Elizabeth Stevens had recently moved from Tasmania to Melbourne and in with her aunt and uncle to study and eventually join the armed forces. In early June 1993, around 7 p.m., she got off the city bus and began walking the few blocks home. Paul approached from behind and threatened her with a gun. He told her to stop screaming or he would blow her head off. He held her hand as to not draw suspicion, and several witnesses saw them walking past and assumed that they were a couple. When they arrived in a secluded area, he propositioned her for sex quite crudely, to which she obviously refused. He assured her that he wouldn't rape her, then proceeded to strangle, stab, and cut her throat. Paul then violently stomped on her face, breaking several of her facial bones, then dragged her remains a short distance to a culvert flowing with water. Once her body was discovered the next day, it was said that she suffered several post-mortem injuries, meaning after she was already dead, being stabbed and slashed across the torso even after death. 
but it didn't take long for that case to go cold. So one month later, 41-year-old Rosa Toth exited a train and began her walk home and noticed a lone man as she passed him. He reached out and grabbed her, dragging her to a nearby park, holding a fake gun to her head. She pretended to give in, relenting and relaxing her body, if only for a moment, and then broke free when Paul had also relaxed a bit. As she was pulling herself free, Paul had pulled out clumps of her hair, and she had bitten his fingers to the bone, sources said. But she did get away, albeit with torn stockings and no shoes. She ran for her life, stopped a passing car, got in, and escaped what have most certainly been her murder. But Paul was upset that his plan had been foiled, so that same night... 22-year-old Deborah Freem, I believe that's how it's pronounced, who had just left her toddler with a friend to watch, was his next victim. She had left the house to go grab some milk so that she could finish cooking when Paul abducted her from her car. Four days later, her remains were found near a road. Paul had strangled her, slashed at her, and slit her throat. Toward the end of July, a couple of weeks after Deborah's remains had been found, 17-year-old Natalie Russell was walking home from her college when Paul attacked her. He dragged her from the path she had been walking on, through a large hole in a wire fence and into an adjacent secluded area. He murdered her in a similar manner as he had the others, but during the attack, Natalie had put up a ferocious fight, guys, which did help investigators find DNA evidence available at the scene. The authorities had already been investigating the first two murders as well as the attack on survivor Rosa and were aware that these were all connected. Rosa had described her attacker as being between 18 to 20 years old, nearly six feet tall, with a round face and blue eyes. The police drew up a profile of the suspect, a male, likely unemployed or with a menial job, likely a local resident, aged 18 to 24, average looking and living alone. So they were pretty close. In another bit of good luck, a witness had seen a car that they described as a rusted yellow Toyota sedan parked near the tracks where Natalie had been last seen. The car didn't have plates, but it did have its registration number, which was noted. A man with binoculars, acting suspiciously, who had run up the tracks was also seen. Narrowing down owners of vehicles of that description of the car along with the registration, they finally landed on Paul. They found his address and knocked on the door, but he was not home, so the detectives slipped a business card under the door. Later that afternoon, Paul's girlfriend called the number on the card to ask what it was they wanted. They told her that they were simply interviewing everyone in the area, no worries. So the detectives returned to their apartment and Paul answered the door, happily inviting them in, though he expressed some confusion and surprise as to how many detectives had actually come. So when they asked him about why his yellow Toyota sedan car didn't have any plates, he said that he was getting some repairs done so that it could be licensed again. 
you know, fair enough. When asked about his whereabouts during the time of the three murders, they observed that Paul had some pretty substantial injuries to his hands, some that matched what they knew to be from the women fighting back. His reasoning for himself and his vehicle being near the murder scenes was that his car had broken down at one scene and at another, well, he had just been there waiting to pick his girlfriend up. The injuries to his hands? Well, he explained that he had gotten them caught in the fan of his car while he had been working underneath it. Feeling quite certain, really, that they had their man, they took him to the police station where he continued to profess his innocence until they asked him for a hair and blood sample. After, Paul asked about how long the DNA results would take to come back and whether or not the police had something with which to compare his DNA. Then after a bit, he suddenly said, quote, Okay, I killed all three of them, end quote. He made a full confession. Here is part of his confession. Quote, Walked in a bit of bushland beside the main track in Lloyd Park. Sat there, you know, stood in the bushes for a while, just, I can't remember, just standing there, I suppose. I held the gun to the back of her neck, walked across the track over towards the other small sand hill or something. And on the other side of that hill, she asked me if she could, you know, go to the toilet, so to speak. So I respected her privacy. So I turned around and everything while she did it and everything. When she finished, we just walked down towards where the goalposts are and we turned right and headed towards the area where she was found. I got to that area and I started choking her with my hands and she passed out after a while. You know, the oxygen got cut off to her head and she just stopped. And then I pulled out the knife and stabbed her many times in the throat. And she was still alive. And then she stood up and then we walked around and all that, just walking around a few steps. And then I threw her on the ground and stuck my foot over her neck to finish her off. End quote. Whoo, wow. So Paul told detectives that he had been stalking women in the Frankston area, quote, for years, and that his motivation for the crimes was a desire to kill starting at the age of 14 and his general hatred of girls and women. Paul was charged with three murder counts and one of abduction, charges to which he later pleaded guilty to. Psychologists and other experts examined Paul, noting a lack of emotion regarding the crimes, a single-minded desire to kill, and the unusual randomness by which victims were chosen, leading to a diagnosis of sadistic personality disorder, but not legal insanity. Dr. Ian Joblin, Paul's treating forensic psychologist, said, quote, He found intentional maltreatment of victims intensely gratifying, taking pleasure in the torment, anguish, distress, hopelessness, and suffering of the victim. In contrast to simple anger, the behavior of a sadistic personality is fully premeditated. He is not suddenly exploding with rage. The more aggressive he became, the more powerful he felt. End quote. Paul was ultimately sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. 
in January 2004, after 10 years in jail, Paul was a part of a report titled, quote, Murderer's Sex Change Request Sparks Rights Debate, end quote. In September of 2004, news broke of a letter Paul had sent to his estranged brother, who he had accused in his trial of sexually abusing him as a child, and sister-in-law, who had re-immigrated to the UK at that point. So nothing was said about that up until this letter, apparently, during the trial. And then Paul began identifying as a woman that same year and claimed that these feelings of gender dysphoria are what led him to seek revenge against women by murdering them. In a letter in 2004, he wrote, quote, I committed these disgusting crimes, not because I ever hated womankind, but because I have never really felt that I was male, end quote. And indeed, Paul began wearing women's clothing and cosmetics in prison, in defiance of prison orders. Medical specialists evaluated whether Paul could receive sex reassignment surgery and rejected the idea. Prisoner support groups said that he, quote, cannot be anything but serious, end quote, about his transition, given that it would entail personal risk. One victim's mother said Paul's transition made her and her husband feel sick, calling it a, quote, stunt. But it appears that Paul has since reverted to identifying as Paul and as male. So, so far this year, in 2023, he did become eligible and he did apply for release on parole, but had his application denied by the Adult Parole Board of Victoria. So, his diagnosis of sadistic personality disorder. So let's quickly talk about that. Sadism is a trait possessed by individuals with the personality of displaying recurrent aggression and cruel behavior toward others. Sadists, people who are sadistic in nature, have an innate desire or intention to hurt others physically, verbally, or emotionally, and find pleasure in doing so. So some of these characteristics include... They enjoy seeing other people get hurt and humiliated. There's the intention to harm others without thinking of the consequences. They fail to take responsibility for their actions. They think inflicting emotional, physical, and mental pain on others is acceptable. They can't stop fantasizing about hurting others. They may perform unusual sexual activities on their partner, such as gagging, hair pulling, choking, slapping, and using weird sex toys, quote, weird sex toys, and they have a penchant for bullying. Though the cause of sadistic personality disorder has yet to be determined, there are risk factors that increase the chances of a person developing it. Having a history of injustice, history of receiving abuse or trauma, poverty, personal failures, unfavorable childhood experiences, and perhaps some inheritability. And honestly, with all of this criteria, every bit of it, it would truly amazes me that I don't have sadistic personality disorder. But, you know, it is nothing to joke about. So... From possible conduct disorder in his childhood, with the animal torture and murder, the cruelty inflicted upon his sister by destroying her toys, the petty crimes, all in his early years, to the listless existence where he couldn't maintain any gainful employment and enjoying the absolute terror of his victims, 
I would say that I agree with the sadistic personality disorder diagnosis. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment, please. I love to read them. Or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. Or you can come join us at the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook. I'm really active on both of those platforms. But most of all, thank you so much, guys, for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs>